And now, in an effort to regain a modicum of the notoriety that this podcast never actually had, the following is a short story. But first, this is Bug Spray. It began as an essay intended to tear down the, quote, arbiters of funny, and its first draft was written in the span of four hours in the middle of the night. Like most moments of genius, the intense, insatiable need to have the essay exist was not something that anybody saw coming. This includes Termite256, who ended up writing the damn thing at about 1.30 in the morning on a Tuesday night, but that hadn't been her plan. Her plan had been to do little more than to get so drunk that she no longer felt feelings. Evidently, it needs to be noted, for those of our listeners who wrote in Bob Ross for president in this past election, that for termites, being blackout drunk does not carry with it the same moral baggage that it does for other species groups. And that within the termite community, one's skill at achieving, quote, blackout drunkenness is a main topic of conversation for largely the same reasons that Buddhist monks are considered to be virtuous or so most leading termite activists argue. Termite 256 was normally extremely virtuous. On this particular Tuesday, however, it seemed that virtuosity was impossible, no matter how many 40s she consumed. She tried to conclude that it was indeed a problem with the 40s, a bad batch or something. They did taste skunky, but then again, so does most malt liquor. Furthermore, this sort of thing had unfortunately happened five out of the last seven evenings, and so, as she lay on her bed and stared up at the fissured mineral fiber ceiling tiles above her, wishing she was almost anybody other than herself, she entertained the idea that maybe, just maybe, the problem was with her. Her apartment building roared on around her, the inebriated giving little thought to those for whom the quest to become shit-faced had led to a dead end. At one point, the noise swelled to an almost unbearable level. And then... Three! Two, one. Silence. Nothing. And then the world erupted in noise. Incessant, perpetual vibration. In constant motion. With nothing to calm it down. Termite 256 angrily switched on the fluorescent overhead light in her room that she rented from the elderly termite down the hall that smelled like mothballs and looked like Mike Connors, and let out a scream of her own. Well, it was more like a groan, but anyway, it felt good. The good feeling passed as quickly as it came, and she remembered that she had nothing to feel good about, and that the whole world was awful. This was unfortunate, as she had recently listened to part of Dr. Stephen Lester's book on living simply called Remove the Clutter, You Overextended Idiot. And as a result, one Saturday morning had thrown out most of the things that she owned that brought her joy. Like her television. And her computer. All that was left was the book Sick in the Head 2. More conversations about how hard it is to be a wealthy white human man. By Judd Apatow, that her brother had given her as a gift. In his defense, the book hadn't been her brother's first choice either. 
He had exhausted all of his first choice gifts at least five years earlier and now relied upon a gift acquisition method that consisted of going to Barnes & Noble, just sort of wandering until he got sufficiently tired, and then choosing something from one of those discount tables near the front. Some, Dr. Lester included, have described this inevitable time period in the sibling-to-sibling -sibling relationship as the part in which you, quote, stopped learning anything new about the person but still want to be close enough to them to buy them gifts. Termite 256 had not asked for the book. Her brother had given it to her because at one point he'd gone with her to a comedy club. And then they had eaten pizza. This reporter is willing to concede that Barnes & Noble probably has books about pizza, but they have more books about comedy. So, you know, there you go. Prior to this evening, Termite 256 had had no intention of ever reading Sick in the Head 2, more conversations about how hard it is to be a wealthy white human man. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And so she picked it up, turned a few pages, and began to read. It is impossible for this reporter to say exactly what was in the book, as it has since not only been outlawed by the Central Authority's Main Governing Council, or CAMGC, but all known copies have been burned, and the ashes of the burned copies fed to randomly selected school children all around the continental United States, as a substance called knowledge dust, which, according to official-looking government documents on the matter, can be, quote, effectively masked by the taste of sloppy joes. To answer the question on everybody's mind, yes, it appears Robin Thurgood was one of the students fed knowledge dust, although most of those close to him maintained that he was a flake before he consumed any dust, and that his actions, while both vile and inhumane, were more the result of him just sort of being an asshole. Termite 256 found the information contained within Sick in the Head 2 to be so offensive that, after a rather haphazard internal search, she concluded she would not be able to continue living in a world in which it, the book, had not been responded to. And so it seemed it was either write the response herself, get a better writer to write it for her, or join in in the drunken, suicidal melee on the roof of her apartment building. And since she didn't have Paul Krugman's contact information, and she knew from experience that being sober while watching fellow shit-faced termites fall to their copacetic deaths was unpleasant for the very reason that it sucks being sober around the inebriated, she pulled out the shitty, Chinese-manufactured typewriter she had purchased from a door-to-door -door typewriter and anvil salesman two years ago and began to write. She wrote to educate. She wrote to open eyes. She wrote to burn down the edifice that supported the myth that people like Judd Apatow were somehow better. Termite 256 wrote throughout the night and went to bed at 4.45 a.m. unable to remember a single point she had made in the paper. That didn't matter, though. She was certain that, within the world of so-called comedy nerds, a world she was largely unfamiliar with, her words would have a revolutionary effect. The problem was she didn't know any comedy nerds because she was generally friends with happy, giving, nice people. And then she remembered that Termite 812 was at that comedy show she went to with her brother and that he seemed fairly miserable and selfish and that she had his email because both he and she were on Saul Genderson's e-Christmas card list, even though neither had the opportunity to meet Saul before he died. But no one goes to see stand-up if they actually want to laugh. Only comedy nerds see stand-up, so Termite 812 must be a comedy nerd. Or so went Termite 256's rather flawed, lacking in introspection logic. 
because Termite 812 was not a comedy nerd. He really didn't care for comedy at all. He was at the stand-up show because, although many have tried, there is to date no institution in place within the termite community that focuses on public speaking. Several presidents of CAMGC have spent considerable political capital trying to start organizations akin to the National Speech and Debate Association, but have, for a variety of mundane, garden-variety reasons, failed. Termite 812 had paid the $20 cover and then bought three watered-down Bud Heavies because he was a revolutionary, and as such was pretty intent upon starting a revolution, but also knew that he could not be the face of said revolution. He knew this last point to be true as his mother had once described his personality as that of sediment, but not even interesting sediment. Just like, you know, dirt. Garden variety dirt. The evening that he awkwardly nodded at Termite 256 and her brother through the legs of a stool was the first and last time he attended a stand-up comedy show, as he almost immediately discovered what many comedy nerds choose to ignore, that the vast majority of stand-up comedy is profoundly uncomfortable and not funny in the slightest. Termit 812 walked home that night in the pits of despair, as it seemed that his revolution was not to be. And so he was surprised when he received the email with the subject line, Forward this or your whole family will be crushed by a human foot as Termite 256 was not someone that he would consider a close friend, and as such, her request to forward or die seemed rather, well, forward. But he also didn't want to die, so he read what she asked him to forward and pretty much immediately fell in love. He seriously considered emailing her back with one of those love poems he'd written five years ago in the unlikely event that he would ever actually feel the emotion. But no, she was too special. She deserved more than boilerplate sentiment. Termite 812 allowed himself a few moments in the warm fuzziness of infatuation, and then he got to work. A week later, Termite 256, who was, thank God, successfully drunk, had just made herself a note to cancel the appointment she'd made with her brother's therapist, as she was clearly fine when the door to her bedroom burst open and three drones from the CAMGC burst in, cuffed and blindfolded her, and dragged her off to the CAMGC's temporary headquarters behind a supply closet full of yellow legal pads. Legal pads that a certain anxiety-ridden camp director cared just a little bit too much about. Her blindfold was removed and she was accused of conspiring against the CAMGC, as well as making others feel uncomfortable around her. In his withering appraisal of the termite uprising, all right, all right, all right, Dr. Stephen Lester points out that the making others uncomfortable charge carries with it no applicable punishment, and is mostly used when CAMGC leadership feels that the list of charges against a suspect looks too short. This fear is not entirely unprecedented, as in recent years there have been several high-profile cases where the extensive government funds used in apprehending a perp were not worth the corresponding offensive action, or so Thomas Friedman has several times argued. In the case of Termite 256, however, CAMGC leadership was pretty sure that the conspiracy charge would have been sufficient on its own. But, to directly quote the press release on Termite 256's indictment, one can never be too careful. You know? As it turns out, conspiracy was more than enough, and Termite 256 was sentenced to 20 years in prison for a crime she claimed she didn't commit, and was still pretty confused about, even though the CAMGC had spent considerable funds trying to explain it to her. 
Evidently, another side effect of having nothing like the National Speech and Debate Association is that average Joe Termite is lousy at conveying the reasons behind pretty much anything. Termite 256's sentence pleased Termite 812 as being, quote, falsely imprisoned for a crime one doesn't remember committing was number four on the list of 18 requirements for the politically dissonant that he found behind a Dippin' Dots stand at the Vans Warp Tour in Albany a few years back. Well, he'd actually purchased it at the merch table, along with a Fat Mike replica neck brace that he thought looked cool, but didn't understand the significance of. And so posters were made, as were buttons, and bumper stickers, a white 256 on a red background. He'd gotten the color scheme from an acquaintance who had lived in Kazakhstan for two years as a child, and had let the experience bleed into everything in his life. You know that joke about Bandcamp and American Pie? Yeah. Well, this asshole had the same thing, but with a former Soviet republic. A television commercial was produced starring Lisa Edelstein. It immediately became so controversial that everyone involved denied involvement, and eventually the overall existence of the 32nd spot. A book, My Life, My Stand, My Struggle, My Purpose, written in prison by Termite256, according to the book jacket, was in quick succession published, put on the banned book list, and then sold out at Barnes & Noble. Word was getting around, but would such word last? That was the question on the minds of CAMGC brass as they moved back into their permanent headquarters in a banker's box on Main Street. Conventional wisdom seemed to dictate that this fad would blow over in a week and be replaced by something equally stupid, but, the brass hoped, without any potential to shake up their regimented, brassy world. Maybe bring back the ice bucket challenge, suggested Termite 7. Remember that? That was fun. And it was good because it let you feel like you were doing something without actually doing anything. Maybe we should, you know, do something like that. And so it was settled. CAMGC's crack social media marketing team got to work to come up with something that was, quote, fun and stupid. A distinction that every member of the team quietly resented, as it kind of went without saying that if they were doing their jobs right, all of their output should be both of those things. A few hours later, however, at the request of a senior, as of yet unidentified CAMGC official, who, we can confirm, has actually won several awards regarding their similarity to a certain metal alloy, the entire project was scrapped, and the cracked social media marketing team went back to printing out Google images of scantily clad women for a research project that CAMGC Brass had been doing for the past four years. Nothing has come out of said research project. Most acknowledge that it's one of those things that probably should be shut down, as it does consume considerable funds. But the research will undoubtedly continue, as it's, quote, just the way that the CAMGC operates. And life went back to normal. Well, no, it really didn't, but it was just easier to believe that it had. The hashtag Termite256 movement grew larger, even as Termite256 knew nothing of the movement. She quietly withered away in a uniquely elaborate prison system that had been designed specifically to limit the number of administrative aides it would need, shifting almost all clerical duties into the hands of the inmates. The result of this was that, for most of her six years of incarceration, Termite 256 spent 11 hours a day, seven days a week, denying requests of other inmates for personal items, like cigarettes and pornography. 
The kicker was that she would have approved some of them, but had only been given a denied stamp. And at that point, you know, what are you really going to do? The same, what are you really going to do, sentiment was echoed on her parole application, which was granted. She emerged from the main gate of the Guggenheim County Pen to a sea of reporters and supporters. She was slightly confused, but ultimately heartened by their sympathy for her false imprisonment. She deserved this, because what had happened to her was wrong. She opened her mouth to thank them for whatever they had done, but before she was able to get a word out, she found herself thrust forward into the backseat of a waiting limousine, which is where she met Termite 812. He knew that he needed to come clean with her. She would find out eventually the exact ways in which he had modified her paper about how Judd Apatow's brand of humor is out of touch with much of the American experience, and turned it into a declaration of intent to topple, by any means necessary, the central authority's main governing council, and install a government that actually listens to average Joe Termite. He was going to tell her. He was. But how exactly do you go about telling someone that you are single-handedly responsible for their imprisonment, and that you use their misfortune to start a movement? A movement that you aren't entirely sure they're on board with in the first place, but, given the chance, you think you'd be able to convince them to not just join the fray, but to lead. How do you tell someone that you don't really know that you love them? He began by introducing himself. It made sense to start slow, he thought. Get her comfortable. He had written out some talking points on hotel stationery, but in the excitement of coming to pick her up, had forgotten it. Stay calm, he told himself. And then she sighed slightly and looked vaguely disgusted. And so he told her everything. The words flowed from him not entirely unlike pus from a zit, so that, after some time had passed, he found himself in the midst of a plot summary of an episode of that TV show Joey and figured that that was as good a place to stop as any. Hopefully he'd gotten everything out, although he had been so focused on her reaction to what he was saying that he couldn't actually remember what it was he had said. But what reaction? She didn't react. To anything. Maybe prison made her hard, he thought, or maybe she was always this way. The limo pulled up to a stoplight, and Termite 812 pondered how it is that he was able to feel like he knew someone so intimately, when in reality he knew almost nothing about them at all. Inside the limo, there was silence. He and Termite 256 looked at each other. Are you done? she asked. He told her that he thought he was. She nodded, opened the door, and got out. Revolutions are never easy. They're never simple. They're messy and ugly. Everyone will eventually see how important this is and come around. You fucking rock! Termite 812 had written these sentences to himself in the unlikely event that Termite 256 was not interested in being part of the revolution. The when-she-says-yes page in his Kirkland brand composition notebook was not a page at all, but 21 pages of plans on how to go all out in using the image of the political prisoner to further the cause. Revolution 2.0, he had planned on calling it. Termite 256 hadn't said anything. Termite 812 felt himself try to be optimistic. No news is good news, right? She'll be back. God damn it, he concluded that evening, after assuring an understandably antsy movement board of directors that everything was okay and that Termite 256 would be along any minute to meet with them. I'll just have to find a new one. Which is how... 
Although she lacked both the wit and charm of Termite 256, Termite 712, no relation, became Termite 256. And life went back to normal. Well, no, it really didn't. But once again, it was just easier to believe that it had. Bug Spray is written, directed, and produced by Scott Gooden, with music by B. Norman Clature. Special thanks to Spencer Kennard. This is, of course, a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner, or possibly both. Visit BugSprayPod.com for more information, and subscribe to Bug Spray on iTunes. And check out B-Side Cassette's Donnie Darko companion tape. It's pretty fucking cool. <laughs>